your Bibles to Romans chapter 10. We'll be reading this morning, Romans 10, 14 through 21. Romans chapter 10, 14 through 21. As we read this, try to note the flow of the Apostle's thoughts. So the Apostle Paul just laid down all the reasons why it is so easy to trust in Christ. The Word of God is so near you. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on Him who they've not believed? And how shall they believe in Him who they've not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace and who bring glad tidings of good things. Notice the contrast here in verse 16. This helps us understand this context. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. I think in those first verses, well, I'll just keep reading. You'll, you'll, you'll see this. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But, another contrast, I say they have, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? Well, first Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who didn't seek for me. I was made manifest to those who didn't ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Be seated. I have read this passage probably a hundred times in a lifetime, maybe more, I don't know. But it's not until you put things in the context that the light goes off in your head. And that's the, the, the wonderful thing about verse by verse expository teaching. You, 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 you start to see the picture that God is doing in the Word that you, you miss otherwise. 9, 10, and 11 is a series of explaining what God is doing with Israel. And if you miss that, you miss the whole point of what Paul's saying. And I have always looked at verses 14 through 15 as a missionary call and Certainly that is the application. But here Paul is giving the argument of an objector. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's taking away excuse after excuse for unbelief. He's dismantling every Jewish argument for not accepting the Messiah. That is the context. And not only is he taking away the argument for Israel, he's taking away excuses for everybody. We all, doesn't matter what country you live in, what your geographic or what time period you lived in, all are without excuse. And all are responsible and accountable to God to respond to the knowledge that God has given them. But you think about the knowledge that God had given Israel of all people, but they have not obeyed the gospel. It's not that God didn't send a preacher. It wasn't that God told them to believe on somebody who they'd not heard about. They were well aware of a Messiah. They were well aware that a Messiah was going to suffer. They were well aware that Gentiles were going to be incorporated into the body of Christ. So who is at fault? Is it God? 
No, it is Israel who is at fault. That is Paul's point here. And I, it was like the Holy Spirit had to teach me this this week. And, and when, you, when you start digging in, you start thinking, oh, I've never seen this before. It's stuff to get excited about because the Holy Spirit, he's a wonderful teacher. And when you come to the Bible with your preconceived ideas of what it's saying, and you've heard messages after messages that this is a missionary call, you read it with that lens and you miss what Paul is intending to say. And I'm not saying that this isn't a passage that you cannot use for missions. Yes, you can. But that's not the primary application, and that's not the primary intent that Paul was writing this for. It was to take away every excuse, especially for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles. You know, raising five boys, I have heard some incredible excuses. <laughs> and they just don't hold up. I had a little lad in Ireland, and he was the most disorganized son out of all of them. He was probably the most intelligent. Maybe they go together. But his teacher, Mr. Fitzpatrick, would take his backpack at school and mill around looking for his homework, and he would find apples that were growing fungus on them, wadded up papers, you name it, was in that backpack. And one day, Mr. Fitzgerald was so frustrated with Caleb, he says, Caleb, why don't you have your homework done again today? And he says, Mr. Fitzpatrick, he says, my mom had me move my bed last night. And that was his reason. And a boy sitting next to him, John O'Dwyer, this big jolly boy, he just starts to beat his desk and laughing and roaring. Mr. Fitzpatrick did not appreciate that one bit. My oldest son, he came up with a doozy one time. My wife looked out the back window, and the back pasture was caught on fire. And she sees these two little boys trying to splash water out of this pond. And the more they're fanning the flames, the more it's spreading. So we all dash out there. Her sister, me, all the other siblings with brooms, trying to beat the fire out with buckets bailing out. We finally got it under control. So here's Michael, our oldest boy. And he's walking back with his mom, back to the house. And she's ready just to, I mean, turn his backside on fire, not just those grass. And so he says, Mom, he says, we were playing a game, me and my cousin. And, and we were missionaries. <laughs> and, and the plane that we were going into the jungle, it caught on fire. And, and we, so we were flying it, and, and it went down into the jungle, and, and we were going to, and, and so these missionaries were going to lose all their material, and we were going to put the fire out. And she says, Michael, stop. <laughs> and he looks over at his cousin. He says, I told you that wasn't going to work. <laughs> but that excuses, and that's exactly what's going to happen when we stand before the Lord. That excuse is not going to work. It just doesn't stack up. So God, through the Apostle Paul, is preparing Israel to repent, to change their mind, to acknowledge that Jesus is Messiah and that Jesus is Lord. But in the early part of this letter chapters 1 and 2, he doesn't just indict the Jewish people. It's all mankind. Through creation, God has revealed his divine nature and his power so that mankind is without excuse. Instead of worshiping the creator who is blessed forever, amen, they turned and suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. They did not glorify God as God, even though they knew God. And it says they professed themselves to be wise. They actually became fools 
and then their foolish hearts were darkened. That's Romans 1, 18-32. Chapter 2, Paul again indicts particularly the Jewish people who had the law, but not just the Jewish people, all people. And he says this, he says, in effect, every one of us is without excuse. He says, the moment that you judge another person, there are two things that are going to condemn you. First of all, by judging another person, you are proving that God has written the moral law on your heart and you know right and wrong. The second way that judges you, the very thing that you're condemning your neighbor for doing, those are things that you do also. And then he goes right to the Jewish people who have the law. They made their boast and their trust in the law, but they did not do the things contained in the law. So all mankind is guilty before God. And then in chapter 3 and 4, Paul beautifully displays that by the law, none is righteous, that no one is good in the eyes of God, that in our flesh we cannot please God. So obedience to the law, obedience to the conscience, all it does is bring condemnation. For the law was given so that sin might abound. There was a law, and where the law was given, then sin was imputed or calculated up against us. And then in chapter 5, Paul explains how God provides righteousness in Christ alone. Even when you and I were ungodly, when we were weak and without strength, and we were the very enemies of God, what did God do? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he plays this, paints this beautiful picture before them that it's Christ alone, that Abraham was justified by faith alone, that David said, blessed is the man to whom God does not impute iniquity, whose transgressions are covered. That's the grace of God. That's the goodness of God that does that. Now, how do we live the Christian life? Paul explains it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Beautifully, our human nature, we think that the Christian life should be won and walked out by striving and working harder and harder. And Paul says it's a paradox. That's not how... You have victory in the Christian life. You have victory in the Christian life, not by self-striving, but by self-crucifixion and crucifying ourselves with Christ. Counting that old man dead and living a resurrected life with Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, yielding ourselves, surrendering ourselves to Christ. And by the Holy Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body. That's how we live the Christian life. And then in 9, 10, and 11, God turns his focus on the Jewish nation and also how it affects the Gentiles. Why has God chosen in his sovereignty to give mercy to Gentiles? Why has God in his sovereign will now hardening the Jewish people? That must have been mind-boggling to a first-century Jew. At the time of Paul's writing, the Jewish nation had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. With the cooperation of the Roman Empire, they put their Savior to death on the cross. Even after his resurrection from the dead, the Jews refused to change their mind, to repent, and to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And the day of Jesus' prophecy of judgment on Israel was right around the corner. He says, this city is going to be left to you desolate. And in 70 A.D., that prophecy was fulfilled by Titus, the Roman general who came and wipes out 
the city of Jerusalem. So in this passage that we're looking at today, we can see great numbers of Gentiles coming to faith. The gospel, during the gospel ministry of Jesus, it was just a handful of Gentiles coming to faith. Jesus was primarily focusing on the nation of Israel. When he sent out the 12, when he sent out the 70, he says, do not go into the way of the Gentiles nor the Samaritans, but go into the lost cities of Jerusalem. So his primary ministry was to the Jewish nation. But even in the Gospels, we see a hint that God has an intention to save all nations. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, he went into the synagogue. He read from the scroll of Isaiah. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the brokenhearted and so forth. And then the Jew says, look, we know who you are. We know who your brothers are. How do these beautiful words come out of your mouth? And he says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. And one day you will say this to me, physician, save yourself. And then he says, there were many widows in the days of Elijah. And Elijah was sent to none of them except for Naaman, a Syrian. And there were many, what am I talking about? I missed that one. Forgive me. Elijah, there were a lot of widows. I'm just, I don't know where I'm at. Widows in the nation of Israel. Wasn't sent to any of them except for a widow of Zarephath. And he fed her. Then Elisha, his predecessor, he went to Naaman and healed him. And he, You know what happened when they heard that? They were ready to throw him off a cliff. He was trying to tell them that this gospel is for everybody. And when the centurion, a Roman officer, sends a servant to Jesus, and the servant comes and says, this man's worthy for you to come and heal him. He's built a synagogue. He loves our nation. Before the man can even get... Before Jesus could even get to the centurion, he says, I'm not worthy for you to even come into my roof. I'm a man of authority. I tell this one to do this, and he does it. And another one go there, and he goes there. And you, Jesus, if you will just speak the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus turns around, and he rebukes the Jewish people. He says, I have not found this kind of faith in Israel. This is what God was doing in the Gospels. It was, it was there under the surface. And then on the day of Pentecost, what does God do? He blesses these Jewish people with languages that they've never heard before, and they take the gospel back to the entire Roman Empire. And those Jews who were Hellenists, they went out speaking to Hellenists, who then started converting Gentiles. And by the time Paul writes this letter, the church now is outnumbered by Gentiles to the Jewish saints, probably three to one. All of this proves that God's purpose in electing Israel had not failed. The reason he chose Abraham was so that in his seed all nations would be blessed. God's plan did not fail. Romans 9-11 through 11 is laden with Old Testament quotations and allusions that the Gentiles would be saved. The unbelief of Israel and their salvation of the Gentiles is nothing other than the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes and his promises that his word would not fail. Let God be true and every man a liar. The question before us in Romans chapter 9, we've already looked at it, and that question was, how have so many Israelites rejected and so many Gentiles are coming to faith? Paul's answer in Romans 9 stresses the sovereignty of God. God can do as he chooses to do. Many Israelites do not believe because they chose to trust in their ancestry. We are Abraham's children. We have never been in bondage. And Jesus turns around and says, whoever practices sin is the slave of sin. And God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. It's got absolutely nothing to do with your ancestry. The Jewish people thought they were saved because they followed the law and had nothing to do with the law. Their obedience to God turned out right.
rather to be disobedience. Therefore, God hardened them just as he did with Pharaoh in their rebellion. The answer of the question in Romans 10 stresses man's responsibility for the truth that is clearly given to all people. Those Israelites who did not believe failed to believe because they had not submitted to God's method of faith righteousness. Instead, they were seeking the law. So Paul, in Romans 10, 1 through 13, he demolishes their argument that faith, righteousness, is just too difficult. In fact, he said it is so easy. It is even near you. Anybody can do this. There's nothing special. And he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14, to show that the Israelites always knew this. You don't have to ascend into heaven. You don't have to plunge into the abyss. It is near you, even in your mouth and in your heart, that if you will simply confess Jesus Christ, that he is Lord, that he is not a prophet, that he's not just a good teacher, he's not a moral man. All those things are true. But the divinity of Jesus Christ is what saves us. We must believe that Jesus Christ is, God in flesh is a substitute for our sin, and he alone can give us forgiveness because he lived a sinless and perfect life on our behalf. So that his argument is, no, it's not too difficult. You just simply have to have faith, just believe. In Romans 10, 14 through 21, he removes a second excuse. Well, what if we've never heard? How can we believe in someone that we don't know about? How can we have Faith in somebody who's never sent us a messenger. And so Paul's answer to that is everyone, everyone, especially the Jew, has enough information to respond to God positively. General revelation in particular is enough. Conscience is enough. But those things are never enough to save anyone. We've got to know about what Jesus Christ has done. So our responsibility in all of this, our responsibility is to give people an objective truth to believe in. Faith must have an object, something to trust in. John's gospel, that's why he wrote his gospel. He gave objective evidence of who Christ was, he contained seven specific miracles. And every one of those miracles pointed out something about Jesus' divinity and his character. The raising of Lazarus, for example. Jesus said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he that liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this? My Father did not give you the true manna when Jesus made that bread. Feed 5,000. That was a sign to the Israelites. I am the true bread that has come down from heaven. And so every one of those miracles was a sign showing who Jesus was and what he could provide for those people. And so John writes in his conclusion, many other miracles, many other signs Jesus did in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. We have got to give people objective truth in order to trust in Jesus Christ. Faith does not come in a vacuum. And so we have to give people objective truth. One of my favorite books, and I've lost it, or I gave it to somebody, was this little book. It was called One Thing That You Can Do Now That You Can Never Do in Heaven. And it was all about witnessing. Great little book. And man, I read that and I was so excited. I remember one illustration he gave. This is about all I can remember from the book. But he, he just he looked for ways to turn everything into gospel uh, presentation opportunities. And he saw this guy in an airport. And he had a, a chain around his neck with a cross. And he just started talking to him. And he says, man, he says, I think I'm going to get a, a, a necklace like that. He says, oh, really? He says, yeah, but I, I'm going to put a wheel a, a wheelchair. I'm going to put an electric chair on mine. And the guy says, what? What an electric chair? He says, well, yeah, that's, that's, the way we, that's the way we put people to death today. He says, you know, th th that cross, that's, that was the way you 
And that was probably the most cruel way of putting anybody to death. He goes, really? I didn't realize. I just thought it was a cool you know, piece of jewelry. He says, let me tell you. And the guy was just, he said, yeah, tell me all about it. And he just get, went right into the gospel. That's, now, I've never done that. <laughs> but yesterday, I had such a cool opportunity. I'm walking down the trail with my stupid dog. That dog is an evangelist. I mean, he loves everybody. <laughs> and he took off bolting for this guy. And the guy had his head down. He didn't even know what was coming. And I mean, he is right in his face. Tracy said, I am glad I did not go for the walk with you. <laughs> and I, he's just he's jumping all over him. And the, the young lady that is with him has on her shirt one word, faith. What an opportunity right before me. And I says, I love your shirt. And I says, do you know the definition of faith? She says, well, not really. And I says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. You know it's going to happen, but you've never seen it. It's evidence. You know it's real. Evidence of things not seen. And then she looked down. I had a Bible in my hand. And she said, are you a Christian? And I said, yes, I am. Let me tell you about Jesus. It's that simple. I mean, it's not that hard. And God says, how can they believe in somebody that they have not heard? Now, for the Jewish people, they had heard. That's Paul's point here. I've got a couple more illustrations from John, but I think we'll have to leave those. People believe, people, all people believe in something. People will put faith in about any ridiculous thing, whether it's a crystal or whether it's a newspaper that talks about your day that you were born and what season. People ask me what sign I'm born under. I have no idea. So I just tell them I'm under the sign of the fish. <laughs> they say, what does that mean? That was what the early Christians used to put on the sand. Ichthus is the Greek word. Jesus, iota. Theta, he is God. Sigma, he is Savior, soter. That's what ichthus meant. That's what they meant when they put that little fish on the ground. Jesus Christ is God, and he's Savior of the world. So, that, so if someone wants to tell you your horoscope, just tell them, I'm, I'm, I'm under the sign of the fish. But there must be messengers. Also, the Jewish people believed that there had to be a prophet that God had sent in order to believe this message. And so Paul answers that question as well. In fact, Jesus answered that question in the Gospels. And he said this, when he addressed the spiritual leaders, wherefore you are witnesses against yourselves, that you are the children of those who killed the prophets. Fill up the measure of God's wrath of your fathers. You are serpents, you're a generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Because they had a lot of knowledge. They were therefore more accountable. Therefore, I have sent you prophets. I have sent you wise men. I have sent you scribes. Some of them you've killed. Some of them you've crucified. And some of them you will scourge and you will persecute them from city to city. And now Paul's about to address these objections and particularly to the Jews in verse 16. So verse 16 says this. Had they have somebody, did they have somebody to believe in? Had they heard enough information about a Messiah? Did they have a preacher? Did they have those beautiful feet that brought them a message? Verse 16 says, ah, you don't have any excuse, Israel. The fault lies with you. And by implication, that's all mankind. But have they not all obeyed the gospel? For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? It's interesting that the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes Isaiah 53. Behold, who has believed our report? So what had the Jews done about the report of the Messiah? Isaiah confirms it in an emphatic question. They have not obeyed the gospel. The good news was about the Messiah. Just as the Jews of Isaiah's days rejected God's revelation, so the current Jewish people had rejected the message about Jesus. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah was about their suffering 
Messiah. He would be a root out of dry ground. That could have been a sort of subliminal or an allusion to the virgin birth. It's interesting, when the Pharisees started to attack Jesus, this is what they said to him. They knew there was something off about his birth. And they said to Jesus, we are not born of fornication. They did not accept that Jesus was born of the virgin birth. He was a seed, a root out of dry ground. There was no form nor comeliness that we should desire him. He had no appearance of a majestic king. In fact, their king came lowly, riding on the foal of a donkey. That was the way Jesus, their Messiah, appeared. He was a man of sorrows. He was a man acquainted with grief. We hid as our faces with him. He was despised and rejected. Why? Because he became sin for us. So the conclusion is in verse 17. Here's the conclusion. So then, Israel... This is what you need to hear. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. I remember when God began to draw me to himself. And I opened up a Bible. I had all these questions. I didn't believe that I was here by accident. I I didn't believe that, that life had no purpose, but I was just about there. I mean, I was so discouraged as a teenager. And where was faith going to come from? It's not something mystical. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. I began to read the Bible. And I understood who Jesus Christ was. You can't put your faith in somebody you don't know, in somebody that you've never trusted. And if you are a Christian today and your faith is weak, Start pouring the Word of God into your heart, into your soul. That's how faith grows. That's how you develop your faith. Listen to good, godly Bible preaching on the Internet. There's a lot out there. And faith will grow. It comes by hearing and hearing, not by philosophy. It comes by hearing divine-inspired truth. I remember when I met my wife, she said, Pat, stop using me as illustrations. But this is a good one. (laughs) Her faith was incredible because her family learned to walk and to live by faith. I remember the first summer that I met them, we had this prayer meeting. They were going to kick us out of this building that we were using for our church. And so her dad... It's a long story. I'll call it short. They gave us a building. We found a bulldozer. We moved a building five miles through a town. We put two buildings together, and he soldered them together with with glue. I don't know what he did. And there we had a building. I mean, it was a miracle. It really was. And I watched this happen. And I remember when I first got married, and I thought, oh, my goodness, we're going to have a child, Tracy. I don't have a job. And I look, and she says, what are you worried about? God's going to provide. And I wanted to say, no, I've got to provide. And I think I did say that. That's my responsibility. She says, no, it's not. She says, you got it backwards. God feeds the birds, Pat. He puts clothes on the flowers. The more you read his word, the more you know about Jesus, the easier it is to trust him. It is so easy to trust Jesus when you know him. When you see his character, you see his goodness. And faith comes that way. And Paul is telling you, Jews, you have the very oracles of God. You just haven't believed the report. And we need to do the same thing. In order to believe, a message must be given. Saving faith must be based on historical, accurate truth about Jesus. Faith comes from a divinely inspired message. So now let's answer the objection that they haven't heard. But I say, have they not heard? Again, Paul's emphatically saying this with a question. It's a rhetorical device. Excuse me. (laughs) It's a rhetorical device to say, okay, we have heard. Have they not heard? Yes, you have. 
and he quotes a portion from Psalm 19. Now, I want to just back it up just a little bit to the book of, of Romans. Had they not heard that it was going to be faith-based righteousness? How was Abraham justified? Abraham believed in the Lord, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham wasn't circumcised when he was justified. Abraham didn't have the law when he was justified. The gospel was preached through Abraham to all people. For the Jew and the Gentile, God has granted general revelation to all of us, and that's what he's saying. There is no one who can stand before God and say, I did not hear enough to respond to God. You, we get questioned as believers, don't we, all the time. Well, what about those people who've never heard? And I think it's a smokescreen because it's deflecting. I have to make a decision about Jesus. But I, it's not bad to, to go ahead and, and answer that and say, where are those people? There aren't any. Everybody has heard enough to respond to God. The Ethiopian eunuch knew nothing about Jesus, did he? But he was responding to the light that he did have. He's an Ethiopian. He is converted to Judaism. He knows that there's one true God out there, but he doesn't really know how to find him. So God had a way of finding him. You seek the Lord, and you will find him when you seek with him with all your heart. And he's sitting in his chariot, and by golly, he's reading Isaiah 53. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Philip, God had a way of getting him in the right place at the right time. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless somebody guides me? How can they believe in him who they not hear? How can they hear without a proclaimer? And how can they proclaim unless God sends them? That's our responsibility. Their responsibility is to respond to the information that God has given them. But God wants you and I to participate in this. That's the beauty of it. And so Philip opens the scripture, and he says, that's Jesus. And the Ethiopian stops and says, here's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? And here's the requirement. It's so simple. If you believe with all your heart, thou mayest. And he says, I believe. And they both went down to the water, and he baptized him. I'm lost because that wasn't a part of my notes. <laughs> so um, where was I? Israel. The fault lies with them. We have general revelation. All people have enough to respond to God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech. There is no language where their voice is not heard. Their words have gone out to the ends of the earth. The sound has gone out to all earth. The Greek word there, the root of that word is oikos, which is the word house. The inhabitants, those who live, it's individual people have heard the words of God. And then he says, what about the nation of Israel, verse 19? But I say, did Israel not know? And he says, I want to show you Two ways that the Israelites should have known what I was up to. God has always intended to save Gentiles. This was always his purpose from the beginning, before even creation of the world. God was going to choose people to save them in Christ Jesus. That's always been his plan. And Israel knew that because Moses said it and the prophets said it. So let's start with Moses. Moses said this, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold, and he says, I was found by those who did not seek me, and I was made manifest those who did not ask for me. So Moses, in the law, gave this to them. It was clear that Moses was saying that the Gentiles were going to hear. This is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 21. 
And basically what he's saying, you Jews, you are worshiping what is really not God. You have carried with you all through the wilderness the temple of your God. I think it was Moloch who he said it was. And you've always failed to understand that I am going to provoke you with a people who are non-covenant people and people who are of a stammering tongue and of a different language. They are going to praise me. Now, you Gentiles, what about them? Well, let's look at the, the, the prophet. Not only did Moses say it, but Isaiah says it as well. The prophet. With men of other tongues, I will speak to this nation, yet for all this they will not hear me. Now God contrasts the Gentiles with the people of the Jews of Paul's day. The Gentiles who were not seeking God in the sense that they were idol worshipers. They, the Gentiles, they had exchanged the truth of God for a lie. The Gentiles had changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. And therefore God gave them over to their uncleanliness. And yet they had found God in the days of the Messiah. Isaiah was clear that a time was coming when Gentiles would embrace the gospel. Paul quotes Isaiah when he's talking to the Jewish elders in the city of Rome when he gets there after his arrest. And this is what Paul says. The heart of this people, the Jewish people, has grown dull. That's a state that they were not formerly in, but now had grown dull. Their ears are dull of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I would heal them. But now let it be known to you, I turn to the Gentiles, and they will hear it. Israel was seeking self righteousness. And God in all of that time is long-suffering and patient, wanting people to turn to him in faith. The Old Testament says that the gospel was not too difficult to comprehend. They had ample information given them to have faith. They were without excuse. God stretches his hand. Notice this. All day long, Stretching the hand is symbolic of God making every overture, God making every attempt to reach the lost. He does it all day long, continuously, without intermission. Israel's rejection goes back to unbelief and disobedience. The lost person is not asked to do something impossible. The lost person is asked to do something that their pride struggles with. Become as a child and trust Jesus. It's not too hard. All have heard. Enough information has been given to all people to respond positively to God's revelation. And those who fail to respond are genuinely accountable. So at the end of this, what do I want to say? A few things. One, Jesus is the let me be clear about that. Every other religion, every other system is impossible to get to God. One, because it's works-based. And secondly, God is holy and he demands perfection. Therefore, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Faith-based righteousness is based on objective truth. I must believe the objective truth that Jesus is Lord. I must confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that his death and his burial alone is sufficient to give me new life. The gospel is not demanding people to do something too hard. It's simply trusting what Jesus has done on their behalf People will be judged in accordance with the truth that they have. And all people have enough information by observing the natural world and the order around them. Hebrews 11.3 says this, By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed 
by the word of God. So that the things that are seen were not made by the things that appear. Everybody has enough faith to believe that. Why? Because that verse takes away that ridiculous excuse of a endless beginning. A, a, I can't find the word. Oh, my goodness. Oh, i got to start. Anyway, you know what I mean. You know what I'm talking about. I sound like Biden up here, don't I? You, you know the thing. You, you, you know the thing. <laughs> okay, I'm getting myself deeper in trouble here. Infinite regression. That's the word I was looking for. I have my prompter in front of me. <laughs> it takes away the illogical position of an infinite regression. It also takes away the, 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 the excuse that of thermodynamics because the material world can't be getting better and better and better if it's infinite. It can't. It would be an infinite chaos by now, wouldn't it? So anyway, that, that's a great verse. Secondly, people know there's a God by a moral law written in their heart. We are created in the image of God. Therefore, we all have that light planted in us. And if you don't believe me, don't take it up with me. Take it up with John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. John the Baptist said this, He is not that light, speaking of John, but he came to bear witness of that light. That is the true light, and listen to this, that is the true light that lights every man coming into the world. Everyone has that moral compass. Everyone knows what's right is wrong. And everybody has broken their own moral code that they have written for themselves. Man will be condemned on what they know, not what they don't know. You remember the talents given to those people. The one buried his talent, and he said, I knew you were a hard master. So I went and buried it. You know what Jesus said to him in this parable? Or the master, this is the master's God in this parable. He says, out of your own mouth you will be judged. Because you knew my character and you didn't respond to it. Everyone knows that there is a powerful, all-spirit being that you and I can know personally. Everybody knows that. Mark 6.11 says this, It will be more tolerable for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than those cities where Christ performed his mighty miracles. So there will be judgment according to our knowledge. Men are without excuse. C.S. Lewis said this, Men became scientists because they believed they would find a moral law. They expected laws in nature because they had faith that there was a law giver. All men are without excuse because righteousness faith can be achieved by anyone. Mankind is without excuse because we have enough revelation to respond to. As believers, let us choose to walk by faith. We've got enough in this book to strengthen and undergird our faith that we can actually live and walk by faith. It's not an impossibility. It's not in heaven that you have to run up and grab it. It's not down in the abyss that you have to go down and find it. It's near every one of us. It's in our mouth. And that is the word of faith. It's not a word of faith movement. That's the word of faith about faith that we're preaching to you. So as believers, let's uncomplicate our lives and let's walk by faith. Let us respond favorably to the revelation that God gives us because the more revelation that we respond to in a positive way, the more truth God will give you and I. Lastly, as believers, we are sent to make it clear and to take the message to those who have yet believed. This week, I have a challenge for you. I stuck out a bunch of gospel tracts on that back table to make this message really simple and applicable. How beautiful are your feet this week? 
Beautiful are the feet of those who take the gospel and proclaim good news. That's how simple it is. So my challenge is, grab just one of those. If you're shy, put it in a restroom stall and pray about it. God, may the next person find this and may you use this. Give it to somebody as you're walking out of a store. Hey, would you read this? You'll be surprised at the answers you find. I took my dog into the dollar store on Thursday, I think it was. This guy, oh, he, he loved my dog. <laughs> I had the shot collar on him, that's why. <laughs> but he starts petting him, and he says, can I give a treat to your dog? And so he gives a treat. You want to know how easy it is? If somebody, you come to, and you see a beware of, the, beware of dog sign, just say, that's, that's my favorite Bible verse. They'll say, what? I said, yeah, that's found in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 2. Beware of dogs. And then you can start telling the gospel. I'm, I'm spoofing you. <laughs> but this, this man, we entered into a conversation. And by the end of the conversation, I was able to talk to him about Christ. And he says, you sound just like my grandma. <laughs> Probably about the same age. And the neat thing, I found out we have the same last name. His name is Jesse Cruz. And I'm Patricio Cruz. So, and, and, but we just stuck up, sparked up a conversation. And he didn't tell me, I don't want to listen to this. He listened. It's that simple. And so let's don't complicate it. Start today. Every one of us can be a messenger. But how can they believe in somebody they've not heard? How can they hear unless we are sent? How beautiful your feet be this week. So let's grab one of those and take one with you and let's begin. God, God has a vision for this church and it's a lot bigger than what we see right now. God wants us to reach people who are lost and to disciple them for Jesus Christ and grow saints who can go out and reach other people. There's no limits to what our God can do through a people that are yielded to him. D.L. Moody said that. And you see what D.L. Moody has done for the world. He has left a legacy. And God wants us to leave a legacy. Father, there are no excuses today. No excuses for us in this room for not evangelizing and for sharing our faith. The gospel message is simple. You are working with us through general revelation to give everybody a knowledge of a creator and to give everybody knowledge of a moral God who loves what is righteous and hates what is evil. So I pray today, God, that you will give North Valley Bible Church holy boldness and spiritual backbone. I pray this in Jesus' name.